You're listening to Campus Review Radio. Hello, it's Wade Zaglis here, the Education Editor for Campus Review. With on-campus learning virtually a thing of the past, online or blended learning in the higher education sector is on everyone's minds. More specifically, institutions are wanting to ensure that a remote learning experience is comparable to an on-campus one and won't negatively affect student learning and outcomes. To explore this issue, I'm talking to Andrew Martin, Scientia Professor and Professor of Educational Psychology at the University of New South Wales. His research interests lie in student motivation and the cognitive science of learning. He's advocating a teaching approach called load reduction instruction to help maintain high standards of teaching and learning remotely. Broadly speaking, Professor Martin, how well do you think Australian universities have transitioned to this online learning environment? Do you think we could have done anything better at the beginning of the pandemic to address the issue? Yeah, I think um, I think uh, certainly in Australia and the case in other countries and also with schools, um, what uh, what may have been quite have been chipping away at for a few years. Uh, once COVID uh, hit, we uh, we sort of had to get right in a few weeks. Um, I suspect there. Uh, more differences within universities in how well online learning um, is happening than between universities. And by that I mean uh, there'll be, I suspect, within universities there'll be quite a degree of um, difference between uh, in quality online instruction between instructors uh, and by implication um, between courses and subjects within universities. So it will be very much a function of how an individual um, instructor or lecturer is going about their uh, their instruction. Um, as far as preparation goes, I think I think like most of what's been revealed by COVID on almost every front, from the economy to social services to health, uh, I think uh, it's revealed that. Um, we could have been much better prepared on almost every front. Uh, and in some ways, we shouldn't have had to rely on a, on a, on a pandemic to have got these things right. But, but in any case, here we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, so I think, uh, look, we were, we, as I said, we were chipping away and inching towards quality online instruction. Then we were required to, to, you know, to, 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 to you know, bring that to, to light within a matter of a few weeks. If we had, if I could go back, um, as with any educational intervention, which is, or instructional approach, is what we're talking about, um, you know, you would start off in a fairly small-scaled and measured way to, to test different, um, you know, online modes in different uh, subjects within a university. You would assess how that turned out in terms of assessing learning and student satisfaction and so on. You might refine that online course, and you get good at that before you scaled up to an entire university or entire system. Uh, and so um, but universities were not doing that uh, pre-COVID. Um, it was being rolled out uh, fairly, uh, fairly, you know, not so much unilaterally, but but on a fairly large scale. And there was certainly the ambition to, to take it to, to large scale with a great deal, without a great deal of assessment. Uh, and so um, and so, I think that, uh, and then, then there are, you know, 
innovative techniques that uh, that have been thrown into the mix with that, such as flipped classrooms and so on. And um, and things like that have not been widely validated yet. They may be. I'm not ruling them out. But before you do these things at scale, um, you really should have been uh, more systematically tested. We had the opportunity to over the last decade, uh, but we didn't. And again, uh, so uh, here we are now at scale with uh, mixed degrees of quality online instruction. Well, you'll get the opportunity to reflect in the end, I guess, anyway. Indeed. Uh, You're an ardent uh, supporter of load reduction instruction for online learning. Could you explain some of the practices that characterise this approach? Yeah, so so the overarching principles that 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 uh, sit sit under uh, load reduction instruction they they they're grounded in cognitive psychology and in particular uh, research and theory relevant to the human memory system. And I'm going to talk in very broad ways here, but but you know you can plug in you know load reduction instruction or cognitive load theory into Google and you'll get the, the backdrop in detail. And so the aim, if we if we pull back, the aim of instruction, the aim of education from a cognitive psychologist perspective or even educational psych is to build up the store of long-term memory in, in students' in students' memory system. And so, uh, so some would say that we are our long-term memory. Everything we know, everything we do, uh, is is stored in long term memory, and we're just constantly retrieving that uh, to to function in this world. And so, over the course of school and then university, we look to build up the long term memory in students. Now, to get that 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 information, to get that all those skills and knowledge into long term memory and burnt into long term memory, if you like, uh, it has to pass through what we call working memory or short term memory. And indeed, when we perform a task, it's often performed in real time by working memory, and working memory continually retrieves that information from long-term memory. Now, here's the problem. Working memory is phenomenally limited. So there was decades ago a classic paper by Miller when AT&T, the phone company in America, wanted to know how long should should we make our phone numbers? Um, And Miller identified the magic number seven. So about seven digits uh, our working memory can hold and then it starts fragmenting, but plus or minus two units. Um, Now, if if working memory is overloaded, then that means material won't get into long-term memory. Or if it does, it might be only fragmented or apart, or it might be confused or misunderstood. And so there's a need to deliver information and instruction uh, and have learning spaces, be it on a screen or in a classroom, that reduces the burning up burden on working memory so that information, as much info, can get back to that long-term memory because that's when we learn, when it's stored in long-term memory. If we do this, then we've got a great chance uh, of storing information in long-term memory. Um, and ex- examples of material or context that burden working memory are when we present too much information too early to a learner or when we might have too much information on screen or the distracting elements flying around or sounds on screen or in a classroom where the information is not non-linear, so it's jumping around and a and, and, and student has trouble keeping up. Um, where there's potential to go elsewhere. So in a classroom, you might just get up and walk to another part of the room. But but online, there's vast potential to hit hyperlinks and to go into all these interesting places. So if you think about online uh, environments, all of those things are are very much 
um, a risk of too much information too early, non-linear, potential to get distracted, potential to get off track, uh, and so on. So load reduction instruction is an instructional technique comprising five principles that guide instructors, including online instructors, as they present material so that working memory, particularly when learners are, are novices and new at something, are not burdened. And so the five principles are as follows. The first is where you reduce the difficulty of material in the early phases of learning as appropriate to the learner's prior knowledge. So it's important to get a sense of where the learners are right now when they start. The second is good scaffolding and support through the material, a lot of help giving uh, uh, to uh, ensure that the student is hanging in there. The third is ample structured practice. And so that requires some repetition of things that you might want the student to be learning. The fourth is feedback, feed forward. And so where you provide corrective information to the learner, that's the feedback back part of it. And using that corrective information, you provide them with improvement-oriented guidance. So you, you get them on that feed forward loop. And then finally, when you're satisfied the learner has got the basics of skill and or knowledge, you provide them uh, with independent learning opportunities. And that last part is really important after they've got the basics because um, research into cognitive load theory has identified what's called the expertise reversal effect. And that is if we keep banging on with highly structured and explicit instruction, once someone has got the basic information, then learning can start deteriorating again. So an important part of managing working memory is not to overload it with boredom once you know what's going on. And so that's why the last part is where you give a students a really good opportunity for independent learning, but not before they have mastered uh, the, the basics of knowledge and skill. You've already mentioned a few of them, but what kinds of other practices are not fit for online instruction, in your opinion? Um, can you name anything else? Yeah, look, I think I think um, rather than going into very specific um, examples, and I'll men- but I'll mention a couple. An overarching, again, again, getting back to these guiding principles, because every course is different. Every bit of material in one subject is different to another. And, and so, so in many cases, learning scenarios can be very idiosyncratic. So these, these broader principles, like load reduction instruction, are very good in, in providing some coherence regardless of, of what the environment is. And so, for example, what's not fit for online learning is if you get the order of those load reduction instruction principles around the wrong way. Mm. So, for example, for novice learners, if you throw them into the deep end, you throw, burden them with problems that are beyond the knowledge that they have, if you present information that is not not chunked, it's actually too much too early, or if it becomes a bit of a, a, a bit of a mystery tour and it's non-linear and this the, the student, then none of that is, is, is much help to a novice learner. Um, by the same token, if you um, if uh, for uh, an expert you've got sort of highly developed learners, if you again emphasize the explicit too much, then that can that can lead to what I was talking about in terms of the expertise reversal effect. And so I'd say what's not fit is where you get the ordering um, wrong um, and such that the working memory is overloaded. Uh, and by implication, there's no chance of inf- the, the appropriate or sufficient information getting through to long-term memory. 
I will say, though, that before, uh, even though you may have an expert learner in front of you, the research does show that expert learners still have the same burden on working memory. The difference between experts and novices uh, or high-ability students, uh, for example, um, is that they, rec- they, they tend to move from novice to expert a little faster. So you can give them fewer repetitions. You can move through the basics a little faster. But even those students must move through those basics, including in an online environment. Finally, it appears a university is becoming more and more confident with their online delivery, as they have to, Vicky. Um, but we do have to face up to the fact, don't we, that the current environment may mean that students' grades could slip. Of course, there's COVID-19, but there are also people who need the discipline of going to a physical space, for instance, like a campus, to motivate themselves. Do you see um, those kinds of things playing out despite the quality of, of our online education? Yeah, so I'll, 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 uh, I'll tackle your, your provocative opening sentence first about universities being more confident. Um, and so I do, I do encourage universities, uh, even if they are feeling confident, to, to really check that the online delivery is, uh, is uh, optimal for learning or they optimise it to the extent that they can. Uh, so, uh, so not to be misplaced in their confidence. Uh, so uh, that's certainly key, um, but I think um, I think the other is uh, yeah, it's a, it's sort of hinted at this a little earlier. I think we're going to be a lot wiser in a year's time when we've had the passage of a full year of, of online learning, and probably in a year's time, probably more blended learning than fully online learning. We might find there is a bit of a, a mix between being on campus and online learning uh, and so um, and so I think we'll know a lot more in a year's time when we've passed through almost a you know, full year of, of, of learning in this environment there is you know, there are mixed results when we look at um, what we call blended learning that is mixing online with with, with you know in person um, and it seems that where blended learning is effective um, the principles of load reduction instruction and similar that I was talking about earlier, they seem to be one of the things that are present in cases where it's working, um, and so I think uh, I think that's that's important. Um, and I think as far as students' grades slipping, again, really observing good principles of, of, of you know of, of instructional practice, recognising you know um, the cognitive science behind learning. But also, I think um, the the need to very very have very good processes in monitoring students' progress and targeting students as quickly as possible if they need targeting. So I'm mindful, for example, that um, in New Zealand uh, after the, the earthquakes in, in Christchurch, you know, a lot of students had to move to uh, to online learning, and it seemed that a lot of the learning gaps were averted in cases where students were targeted, identified very quickly. Uh, who would need a more intense learning support, um, and they received that. And then when they went, got back into class, they received further support. So I think we need to be mindful of that. 
Um, I agree. I think there is a certain discipline of, of, of attending a physical space and a certain rhythm and routine to the day that I think we're now only appreciating now that we're all <laughs> locked in our locked in our homes and working from our bedrooms and so on. There'll be that uh, that rhythm of life of, of moving around and I do, you know and, and without fear uh, that uh, that I think we we've underestimated to this point. Um, and I haven't mentioned the relational aspects of learning, and so we do find that you know being you know connected with others in in, mm-hmm. in real time in real space is important. But I'd also uh, suggest that there are you know students who um, who uh, who may be academically at risk would benefit uh, you know do benefit from uh, being being on a campus. So for example. Um, certainly in, in my reading of the research, students with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder uh, are at risk of, of, uh, of, of, of struggling when it comes to purely online environments where, where the potential for distractions and so on and teachers not monitoring so well are, are quite marked. And so I think there's a number of academically at risk students who also would benefit greatly uh, from, uh, from attending in real time in real space. Well, Professor Andrew Martin from the University of New South Wales, thank you so much for your discussion today with Campus Review. It's a pleasure. Thanks very much.